for children to Children's Church. If you want to go to the back, the teacher will meet you. It's coming back. This, this microphone is really a little funny, and there's a sweet spot where it's loud enough, but it won't feed back. And if you don't hit that exact spot, either you won't hear me or you won't hear me. <laughs> because the feedback will deafen you. So uh, it, it's kind of a balancing act there. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at uh, our scripture this morning. Lord, um, I'm grateful for the season of Advent. Uh, Lord, it's not in the Bible. It's not a commanded thing that you've given us. It's a tradition that the church practices. But Lord, I find it really helpful uh, to spend some time heading back into the Old Testament to look at the anticipation of the coming Christ, looking forward to you coming in flesh, dwelling with us, tabernacling with your people. And Lord, it's a helpful time, especially since we too live between um, anticipating your coming as well. We, we live between your first coming and your second coming. And so uh, this, this season of Advent is a good rehearsal for us and a good encouragement for us. Lord, as we look at the book of Zechariah, I pray that you would do that in our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us for living between the times, and that we would be ready to look expectantly for your coming. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we looked at Malachi. And with Malachi, um, what I said was that had taken place after the exiles had returned. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The sacrifices were happening in the temple. And Malachi comes along to encourage his people. And it was, it was after the return from the exile. What we're going to look at this morning is the prophet Zechariah. And where Zechariah is going to be is Zechariah is during the return from exile. So that's when he's going to be ministering is as they're returning from the exile, um, working on reestablishing Jerusalem. Uh, what I thought might be helpful, one of the things I, I, you hear often in Bible study is try to get in the sandals of the people that were, uh, the letters were written to. You know, try to understand their situation. And I, I'm a little skeptical of that approach because we're never going to do it. We don't know what it was like to live during the return from the exile. Their sandals don't fit, fit our feet. And also, we are so culturally conditioned, we can only kind of see things from our position. So it's really, really hard to go back and, and get into their sandals. And this morning, I'm going to try to do the, exactly that thing. <laughs> so you never learn, right? You, you, you always try to struggle not to do that and wind up doing it anyway. Um, what I do want to do, though, is I think it'd be really helpful for us to understand Zechariah if we can go back and try to understand where Israel was at that time. So if you remember the exile, after years of unfaithfulness, God sent the Babylonians in to carry his nation into captivity, carry them into exile. And in Jeremiah, who was ministering during the capture of Jerusalem, that's when he was prophesying, um, he's announcing doom and gloom on the city. He's telling the people, lay down your arms and go out to the Nebuchadnezzar because that's the only way you're going to survive. But he's also prophesying hope in the midst of that. And one of the things that he says, it comes in Jeremiah 29. He says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know my plans for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. So in the midst of God announcing doom, gloom, and destruction, he pops this promise in there. And then when 70 years are done, I'm going to bring you back. And you're going to call on me. And we're going to have that fellowship that you have turned away from consistently over the years. It's a beautiful promise. And so what happens if you read through the book of Daniel, Daniel kind of counts up the years and he goes, hey, that 70 is coming up. And so he starts praying for the return of the exiles. He's, he's anticipating that. He's looking forward to it. It's not there yet because God had told through Isaiah exactly when that was going to happen. It would happen when a king named Cyrus was on the throne. So 200 years before Cyrus comes around, Isaiah, in the power of the Spirit, in the first year of the, or in the year that King Uzziah died, that was about 200 years prior to the return from exile, Isaiah prophesies this in, in chapter 44. He says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by my, myself. And then he, moving forward a few verses, he says, Who says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your foundations will be laid. He named Cyrus 200 years before the man even existed. And he said, when Cyrus comes, I'm going to say to Cyrus, you call my people back to the land. That's what I want you to do, Cyrus. And then in chapter 45, he says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, I will go before you and level all the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. This is the prophecy that Isaiah said before Israel even fell, before the temple's still standing, and he says he's going to lay the foundations of the temple. It's just an amazing prophecy that they're looking forward to. And then the completion of this, the actual happening of this, comes in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where it explains who Cyrus is. Chapter 36, beginning in verse 22, says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of my... Um, I'm sorry, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord be with him. Let him go up. So when you read these kinds of prophecies, you're tending to think as the exiles are returning to Jerusalem, they're going psyched. They are just cheering as they go back to Jerusalem. All that God has said, the promises are all coming true. And so you figure they would rush to Jerusalem and they would get that temple built and get the walls up because they know God is with them. He used Cyrus, a pagan king. He called him my anointed. He said, you're going to shepherd my people. And what did Cyrus do? Exactly what the Lord said. 
So every time I think of the return from exile, I come at it with a great deal of excitement. But when we look at, at what happened in um, Ezra, is Ezra comes back from the, re the uh, return from the exile, they start building the temple, and then it stops. It just ends. And it sits idle for a long time. And you're going, well, why? It must have been something external. Actually, it wasn't. It was probably something extraordinarily internal in the people. They were discouraged. And so when you, when you read through Ezra, you get to chapter 4. I really got confused by chapter 4 this week, studying it, because the kings are out of order. But what I think the author is doing is when he gets to chapter 4, what he's doing is he's compiling a list of all the opposition, the official opposition that they've had to rebuilding the temple. So in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it mentions counselors uh, being bribed during the reign of Cyrus and uh, Darius. So that's a pretty big period. There's two kings that are covered there. And then 4.6 talks about accusations were sent to Ahasuerus, who's also known as Xerxes. Um, Ahasuerus, you remember, was married to somebody famous? Esther? Yeah, that's, that's during this time. And then in, um, in uh, 4, 7 through 23, it has a copy of a letter that was set to Art Xerxes. And in it, it says, these are the, uh, the people who are opposing Israel. In it, it says, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. Now be, may, uh, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So that's the accusation that's going against them. And then in 424, it goes back to an earlier time, and it talks about the work in the temple stopping under King Darius. So it's not in order. It doesn't flow with this, the storyline of Ezra. It's this interruption in the middle. But what Ezra is doing is he's trying to show us this is the kind of opposition we're facing. This, this, this coming back to the land has not been easy. It's not been something that's been terribly easy to accomplish. We meet opposition at every turn, even though Cyrus was prophesied 200 years before. Even though at the right time, Cyrus gave us letters and said, you can go back and here, take some timber and here's some money and go build that temple. There's still huge opposition within the kingdoms. And so when you think about what the people faced, think about their lives over the period from the exile. The exile didn't happen overnight. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar showed up at the walls of Jerusalem and then marched everybody off before sunset. He showed up. He sat there until his army was built and ready to build the siege machines to go against the city. It took weeks for the city to fall. And then it's years as they're carrying exiles out of Jerusalem. So the, the, the fall of Jerusalem takes a long time. So Nebuchadnezzar finally brings them into exile. And then what Jeremiah says is they were in exile for 70 years. They're gone. So for 70 years, the Jews are not in their native land. Their hometown, their capital of Jerusalem is decimated. And they're hauled off places they don't want to go. And they're told what, what, what the narrative they receive is, you are inferior because our God beat your God. When we think about defeating an enemy, we treat them humanely because we think of them as people. But you have to remember the, the narrative, the creation narratives for these, these different people groups. It was this God did this thing and he created us. So if you're not us, 
you're less than us. That's just the way they think about it, is, is if you're not one of us, you're less than us. So the Jews now are carried away into Babylon, and they're essentially treated and told, well, you're not really as important as we are, because we're Babylonians and you're less than us. You lost in battle, so too bad. So they're like that for 70 years. And then think of the opposition that happens even in that 70 years. Toward the end of that 70 years, Daniel is around, right? He's, he's working for the king, and the other counselors get jealous of him. So they try to set him up, and they trick the king into throwing him into a lion's den. They hate Daniel. There, the opposition didn't stop just because Daniel is now this big guy on the throne. The opposition is still there. And then when they finally return to the land, we just read, or just saw from his, uh, uh, Ezra chapter 4, there's all of this external opposition to rebuilding the temple. They're still being oppressed. They're still being told, you're, you're less than. You shouldn't be doing this. And then during this time of rebuilding, uh, remember one of the letters went to Ahasuerus or Xerxes? What happened in the book of Esther? Do you remember? Haman tries to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. So we're not talking about they had a little bit of oppression for 70 years. We're talking about oppression from before the exile, through the exile. Now they've returned to the land while they're building the land. That's probably another 70 or 80 years. This is a people group who has been oppressed for easily 140 years, maybe even longer. They have been constantly told that they are, they're rotten people and that they shouldn't be there and that it's a danger for them to be around. That's the oppression that they face. That's the kind of condition they're in. Um, I heard a talk a long time ago from a man named Carl Ellis, and he was talking about um, what happens when there's systematic oppression, long-term systematic oppression. And you go from a certain position, and he, he comes to his fourth position, and his fourth position is this oppression becomes internalized. And he said, when a people are marginalized long enough, when people are under the yoke of oppression long enough, they begin to believe in their own inferiority. This is what makes internalized racism so tragic. After 140 years, and I'm being conservative there, after 140 years, might the Jews begin to internalize this and think, well, perhaps we shouldn't go back. Perhaps there's something wrong with us. It, it's been built into at least two generations. So when they come into the land, they are still this subdominant group even in their own homeland. So when the, when the dominant culture keeps telling you you're inferior, the people in the subdominant culture can, after a while, begin to believe it and act like it. So here's what's going on now in this, this time when Israel has returned to the land and they're supposed to rebuild the temple. They are easily crushed. It doesn't take much to discourage them. All they've got to do is hear a whisper from the surrounding nations and they're ready to give up because that's all they've ever known. Their entire life. We, we look back at the Old Testament. We see David destroying the Philistines. We see Solomon securing the, 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 um, the promised land. But they didn't see that. They didn't live under that. They lived under your defeated people. We've crushed you. Behave like that. And so when God calls them back to the promised land, it's it's huge that they return. They're, they're fighting the internal narrative that's been drilled into their heads. And so in the midst of this, now they've come to the city, Ezra is trying to encourage them to, to rebuild the temple, to, to establish the nation once again. 
and they're easily defeated. So in the midst of this, while for some reason they stopped building the temple, the, the, the construction just seemed to have ceased for 10 years, um, they stop. And in, how does God deal with this, this mindset that they have, this, this defeated mindset that they have? He sends them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. They were contemporaries with each other. They're mentioned in, in Ezra chapter 5 as two prophets that God sent. And then in Ezra, spontaneously, the building starts again. So God accomplished his purpose by sending them these two, two uh, prophets. So if you take a look at Haggai, Haggai, right at the beginning, verse, the second verse of the book says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So this is what Haggai is going to address, this, this notion that now is not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Who are these people? Is it the Jews saying it's not now time? Or is it the surrounding nations saying it's not now time? Well, the way he addressed it is the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So are they these people, the leaders, or is it everybody else? I don't know. And you know what? Both are true. Because the surrounding culture is saying, don't you build that temple. And the people have given up. They're saying, now's not the time. So either one could be true. So what does God tell them through Haggai to encourage them? Haggai's pretty short, pretty concise book. And its central message, the one that God sent to them to encourage them in their time of despondency is, I am with you. He tells them it over and over again. If, if you read through Haggai, listen for that refrain, I am with you. He tells them repeatedly, that's what, what should encourage them. And in Haggai, all of a sudden, they start building. So apparently that message worked. But it's not only Haggai. We come now to Zechariah. And so what was God's message through Zechariah? Zechariah is much longer. It's 14 chapters. So it's a much more detailed book. There's much more going on. And God says something to them through the prophet Zechariah that helps them to continue as well, to, to get over that defeatist mindset, that, that slave mentality that's been drummed into their heads. And there are a number of themes that weave through uh, Zechariah. Uh, one is God continually reassures them, I care for you. He reminds them over and over again, I have concern for my people. He reminds them that this temple that they need to finish building is gonna be a source of blessing and he talks about the future expansion of Jerusalem. So he's trying to give them a vision for what comes next. And then he tells them that he is not really happy with these nations that oppressed him. The way the nations were supposed to do it was come in, take Jerusalem, lead these people away, and then release them at the specific time, not begin to exalt their false gods or themselves. So God reminds them, look, just because these people don't like you doesn't mean I like them. And then finally, God talks about and he promises to them that he's going to pour out his spirit on them, that they're going to repent, that there's going to be a fountain open for the cleansing of their sin. And so they realize that, that what needs to come in the midst of this is also the repentance. But one theme that I haven't listed yet, so don't, don't get mad if I throw one in at the end, um, stands out to me that I wanted to focus on this morning. You see, they had the temple. It may not have been built but they had the temple. So they could see this promise of God filling his temple. All we've got to do is finish building it. That's, that's all we have to do is finish building it. They could look and see, well, Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. We're, we're, we're here. 
We've been returned. At least we're here. We can see Jerusalem. It's in front of us. And they were painfully aware of their need for repentance. That's why they went into exile is because they were rotten. And so they knew they needed to repent. So those things were all, if you will, within reach. They could do those things. There was one thing that they lacked that they had no possibility of reestablishing. There was nobody on the throne of David. There couldn't be anybody on the throne of David because they were still being ruled by Babylon. The Persians still ruled over them. They had established the governor. The one thing that they couldn't possibly hope to do themselves was put somebody on David's throne. As a matter of fact, as you're going through Ezra, what you see is they're not even sure who's really a Jew anymore because they'd intermarried. So who is of the line of David that we could put on the throne? That, that's beyond their capability. And it's one thing that God brings up through the book of Zechariah repeatedly. He tells them over and over again that this is the one thing he's going to do for them. So that's what I want to look at this morning is kind of look at that theme of the king in Zechariah, this promise, because it's impossible. And impossible promises are the better ones. So what we're going to see today is we're going to talk about the branch. We'll look at the humble king and then finally the sufferer to end suffering. So the branch. Now, Jeremiah had also told them this promise of a coming king. In Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So that's the promise that Jeremiah had for them. And he calls him the branch. Isn't that a strange name? Kind of an odd name to call a king. What he's talking about is at this time, this, the tree of David, David's family tree has been cut down. The kings have been removed. They've been led away into captivity. The, the tree is cut down. There's nothing but a, a stump left. But there's this promise of a sprout coming up out of that stump. There's a promise of a branch returning from that stump of David. And that's what Jeremiah is pointing to. He says, look, God's going to raise up another Davidic king. And he's going to be like this branch that's going to come out of there. So that's the promise they have from Jeremiah. And that's exactly what Zechariah reminds him of as he's trying to encourage them. In Zechariah 3.8, he says, Hear now, O Joshua the priest, and you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So as Joshua is the high priest, without a temple, by the, by the way, at this point, but he's the high priest. And so he's sitting there and he's, he's wondering, well, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to pull this off? We've got enemies all around us. We've got to get this temple rebuilt. He's just lost on what to do. And what Zechariah comes and he says, Look, Joshua, the branch is coming. Don't forget, the king is going to return. There's a time when he's going to come back. The branch will be here. So that's how he encourages him is bringing up the branch. And that's not the end of it. He brings up the branch again in, in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. He says, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts. Say to him, he's speaking again to Joshua. Joshua is an important leader and Ezra and, um, and Nehemiah, he's a, he's a significant leader there. So God tells Zechariah, say to Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch 
For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear the royal honor, and sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of, the council of peace shall be between both of them. So what Jeremiah is being told is, or I mean Joshua is being told is, you have to build the temple because the branch is going to build the temple. So it almost sounds like, like Joshua should just stand there and go, okay, waiting. When's he going to show up? Because he's going to build the temple and we need the temple built. But that's intended to encourage them to build the temple. And then listen to how the branch is described. He's going to sit on a throne. So that's not surprising, right? He's, he's a line of David. He should sit on the throne. But it also says there will be a priest on the throne. So this branch is going to do something bizarre. He's going to be of the line of David, and he's going to be a priest, and he's going to sit on a throne. That, that doesn't make sense. The only people who can be priests are the sons of Aaron. But this son of, of, um, of David is going to sit on that throne. And he is going to build the temple. So where this begins to point us beyond what was happening in that, they, they knew they had to be re rebuild the temple. And, and eventually they did. They did it themselves. So they understood there was something bigger than this going on. This was pointing to a future, not an immediate future, but this is why when we get to the New Testament, they are so looking forward to the Messiah. This is why when Jesus would travel through cities, people would yell, Son of David, have mercy on me. Is because this promise is something that's ringing in their ears. We need David on the throne again. We're looking for the, the, the uh, branch that comes out of the root of, of Jesse. This is what we're anticipating. This is what we're looking forward to. And by the way, at the time of Jesus, the temple was built. It had been rebuilt again by Herod the Great. And yet, the promise remains. He will build the temple. So this actually leads us, and, and, and since we're on the other side of Advent, the real Advent, looking backwards, we can say, well, Jesus did that. In John chapter 2, when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, he says, look, you want a sign? Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the Pharisees go, are you nuts? It took 70 years to build that thing. And Jesus says, nope, three days. And what John interposes as he's looking back is he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the promise of the branch building the temple was not the physical building. It was God's presence with his people. That's why Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. You kill me and I'm coming back. That's what the branch is going to do. And he's also a priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, the book of Hebrews goes through a great detail from about 8 through 10 explaining how Jesus is a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better mediator for a better covenant. In chapter 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, this body I'll raise up in three days, the curtain is the flesh, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to good works, not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a high priest who is sitting on that throne in that temple. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that gives you tremendous confidence. So though we live in an age of oppression as well, we're, we're not oppressed physically, we're not being thrown in jail, but there's constant opposition to the faith in our culture. TV parades a world where God doesn't exist. The movies portray a world where God doesn't exist. So we constantly get that message. What the author of Hebrews is saying is he's relying on that same promise of, to, uh, that Zechariah made. is The righteous branch of David is sitting on a throne in a temple. And so what he tells us is, do these things so that you remember where that king is. Don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect the worship of God. Hear it. You need to hear it again and again and again. Because we have to fight the same battle that they fought at, at the, um, the return from the exile. The opposition is all around us. And that's what our branch is doing as he sits in the temple as a king and a priest. Is he's reassuring us. He's given us the confidence to approach the temple and say, Lord, we're your people. That, that it, an extraordinary promise, an extraordinary privilege that we have. And it's hard to keep our eyes on. So we need to have that confidence too. And we need to have our confidence in our high priest, our son of David, who sits on the throne. So that's the exalted branch. That's the branch that we look forward to and say, this is what we're hoping for. At the same time, Zechariah gives them what must have been a huge surprise. Their coming king is going to be humble. So what Aaron read this morning, and, and we're familiar with it from um, Palm Sunday, but I think it is really appropriate here as well. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Great! This is the picture that people have. The king is coming. Jerusalem is going to shout. The daughter of Zion is going to be screaming in the streets as the king rides in with his royal entourage on his huge horse and his, his mighty army behind him. Uh, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey. But he's supposed to come and, and beat up the bad guys. He's supposed to come and, and remove the enemies and, and secure the nation from all these oppositions all around us, but he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a little donkey, the foal of a donkey. That must have shocked the daylights out of them when they heard that. But the king, he's going to be great. He's the, the branch. He's the root of uh, the stump of Jesse. He's going to come out of there. and No, nope, he's going to come and he's going to be humble. But he's going to bring salvation. That means he's going to deliver us from our enemies. No, he's going to bring salvation. He's going to deliver you from your enemies. What that means is this humbled king is going to come to you in a way he's going to deliver you from enemies you don't even recognize you have. He's going to deliver you in a wonderful way. So we're familiar with this on, on Palm Sunday. We've heard all the gospel stories about how Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And what did he do? He came into Jerusalem and he kicked out the Romans. No, he submitted to the Romans, was put on a cross, and he died. 
That was the exalted king. That's the king who comes with salvation. He came in and, and he surprised them because he didn't defeat the enemies they thought they had. He defeated the enemies they didn't have a chance against, sin and death and hell. That's the enemies that he, de he defeats. So this humble king comes in that way. Their king comes to them in humility because can you imagine the people being so oppressed, so depressed, so worn down that you give them an, a, an image of an exalted, a high, a lofty king? It could inspire them. It could also depress them because they look around the city and go, there's no way. How can we welcome a king like that into a city like this? We, it, it's never going to happen. We can't do it. And so in Zechariah 12, he says, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So what he does is instead of shocking them with this image of, that, of this, this exalted king riding into Jerusalem, he promises them the humblest, the, the, the lowliest of you, the weakest of you, I am going to exalt. I'm going to raise up. You're going to be like David. You keep looking at the king and going, we, had a, we want a king like David? That's not good enough. You're going to be like David. You're going to be that strong. You're going to be that powerful. You're going to be a person after my own heart. Well, what about the branch? What about the son of David? He will be like God. That's how elevated this king will be. This humble king who came in on a donkey will be elevated. He will be exalted. He will be like God like the angel of the Lord, and he'll go before them. Now, if that doesn't sound like Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He is the one who comes, because nobody's ever seen God. And if you look at all the epiphanies in the Old Testament, they talk about an angel. So when they look at this epiphany, they're looking at the angel of the Lord. That's God himself. That's Jesus. Nobody's ever seen God. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. So this, this exalted King is God in the flesh coming to them, the angel of the Lord coming to them, and He goes before us. And so this, the first thing I thought of when I read that was Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this Christ comes to us in a humble state. He comes as one of us, as a man. And where we wind up when we follow him is he is exalted to the highest place in all of creation, beyond all of creation, in the heavens of heavens, and we're there with him. We are lifted up with Christ. That's why he humbled himself. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, so that he would lift us up to the highest of heavens with him. So we will become like David, and he will become like God. That's the promise that the exiles needed to hear. They had to understand this. God understands where you're at. He sees your bad position. 
And his promise to you is, through this branch, through this king who's going to come on a donkey, he is going to exalt you higher than you could ever imagine. You will be like David. That's what the humbled king does. And then finally, these people are suffering. There's not enough food. I mentioned it last week. They're, they're building a wall with one hand and a sword in the other. It's hard. There's a lot of labor going on. They are suffering under this, this curse. And so there is a sufferer who's going to come and end suffering. So the king won't only be humble. Like I said, he's going to defeat their enemies, including the oppression they face. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly for him as one who weeps over a firstborn. When they look on him whom they pierced. Now, the piercing in, in the Old Testament, the way that term is used, is not just sticking a, a, a nail through your hand. It means death. When they look on the one whom they killed, when they look on the one whom they pierced, then they'll mourn. And so this, this exalted king, this, this, this branch who's going to come, he is also pierced by his own people when they look on him. He's going to suffer. He's not coming in just majestic glory. He comes humble, and he suffers for them. And so he will be pierced. He will be stricken. Another idea, another term for a king is a shepherd. He's leading the people. So in, in Zechariah 13... Starting in verse 7, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, in whose land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So the sufferer comes and the people turn against him. And God says, I'll bring judgment on you. Th these are people who are currently under condemnation. They have nations around them opposing them. And his good news to them is, it gets worse. You're going you're gonna to crush the one that I bring to you. And then in the midst of that, the sword's going to come against you. And I'm going to take out of you a group who are going to repent. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. And I will say, they are my people. I'll refine. But the reason that they're refined is because the shepherd gets struck. And that's the picture of Jesus. That's what we saw what happened to Jesus. When he's arrested, what did his disciples do? They fled. They scattered. Peter denied him three times. The shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. That's a little frightening, isn't it? What, what happens when I get my faith shaken or when somebody questions something and I don't know how to answer and I, and I run for cover? Well, the good news is God's fully aware of that. He knows that's going to come. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm doing this. I'm striking the shepherd so that you'll come back to me. 
So the hope that we have is not that we have our faith shaken sometimes. The hope that we have is that we come back and we say, Lord, help. And he promises, this is the ones that I've tested. I've refined like gold. And they're going to be the ones who say, Yahweh is my God. And I'm the one who's going to say, they're my people. Not, well, you doubted. You're out of here. Boy, you were shaken. I don't know. Your faith looked a little dodgy there. That's not how God treats us. He, he welcomes us in. He draws us in. And so that's the picture of this humbled, exalted king. Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is available to you if you're in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. This is the mind that's available to us. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee may bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. I think that sums all of, this, of, all of Zechariah's teaching on that exalted king up. He's exalted but humbled. He's pierced. He submits to death and yet comes back. And in the end, he's going to subdue all the nations, not just the ones pestering you, but all the nations. So why do we need this message? Why is it that this should be the message that we hear in Advent? Well, we are not anywhere near as bad a situation as, as Israel was at that time. The Jews were in far worse shape than we, we are. But in the West, religion is beginning to take a really bad view. People are really opposed to religious. Why do you need religious freedom? You're just going to use it to, to oppress people, to be bigoted against people. Whereas the church was highly thought of a long time ago, now the church is suspect. I personally have seen where I was talking with somebody. They said, what do you do? Hi, I'm, I'm Tim. I'm, uh, I teach at a, a community college. Oh, that's great. And I'm also a pastor. Whoop. Didn't want anything to do with me. It used to be in, in 30, 40, 50 years ago that if I said that, they would be just, oh, that's great, and, and see that as an honorable prof profession. So for us, we have to remember this, especially because the culture is shifting very slowly. And it might be possible for us to shift with it if we're not careful. We have to keep our eyes on what's important here. This is Zechariah is extraordinarily helpful for us at this time. Jesus humbled himself. And he is now currently sitting on a throne in heaven. Stephen saw that. I saw the heavens opened up and Jesus at the right hand of majesty, ruling from heaven. So even as this culture slides away, and begins to turn against any kind of, even a, a, a culturally Christian ideal, we keep our eyes on that throne in heaven, and we say, Lord, we're following you. As it gets more difficult every day, as more things that we believe are scorned and ridiculed, Lord, we're following after you. You are the exalted king, and we've seen you come the first time. We're likewise looking for your second coming. So I heard a man this week say, my eschatology isn't optimistic, but it's hopeful. His, his eschatology, he says, I expect to lose, 
and then when. So we, we, if, if you've got certain type of eschatology, you're looking for things to get worse. And that's okay, because we know what's on the other side of worse, which is much, much better. Every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, every knee will bow. We peek at the end of the book and we go, the branch wins. So our eschatology, maybe it's not optimistic, everything's getting rosy, but it is hopeful in that in the end we will be delivered. That's why we have to have these things that we attend to. I mentioned from Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, look, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect prayer. Don't neglect fellowship. Don't neglect scripture reading regularly because that idea of, of internalized oppression, we have to war against it. And the way that we war against it, the tools that God has given us to fight against that is we have this overwhelming promise. We have a king who won. We have a humble king who defeated suffering in our place. We have from a chopped down dead tree, a branch growing up. And if we don't listen to in worship, in fellowship, in prayer, in scripture reading, if we don't listen to that regularly, the other message will get pushed into our head. You're terrible people. You're bigots. You're filled with hate. And we can begin to become ashamed of who we are. That's what was happening in Israel as they're trying to rebuild the temple. God sent them two prophets to remind them that's not true. That's not who you are. And we need to hear that on a regular, repeated basis. I, I've told people before, you believe what you hear the most of. Whatever you're listening to, you will eventually believe it. So don't neglect these things. That's what Zechariah is telling him. That's why he's, God sent him two prophets, not just one. They need to hear this. We need to hear this. We need to remember that we are in Advent as well. We are waiting the second coming of Christ, and we're looking forward to it with anticipation. Our king will reign. Between now and then, it's a rocky road. So that's our message from Zechariah. That's what Zechariah has to say to the church. And that's our message of Advent, is we have a tremendous promise in the coming of Christ in his first Advent and looking forward to his second. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. We confess that we are prone to be blown about by winds of doctrine. Lord, we confess that the constant nattering in our ears about what's right and what's wrong that is divorced from your standards and actually, in many cases, hates your standards, we confess that that nattering it can get to us at times. So Lord, would you help us not be tuned out of the world and, and disconnected because you sent us here to be your witnesses. You planted Israel right in the middle of the Middle East on purpose. And Lord, you have left your church here in this world. But Lord, help us employ the tools that you've given us to resist that internalized oppression. Lord, we have been set free by Jesus Christ and therefore we are free indeed. And I pray that we all would be hearing that and anticipating it as we look forward to Christmas, as we remember your first coming so that we're prepared for your second. Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.